Welcome to The Theology of the Buddy, a podcast for Catholics who love the beauty of the church's sacred tradition. This is episode 67. My name is Chris, and I am joined by my fetus acates and co-host, Mike Embrook. If you are somebody who's looking to grow in your love and knowledge of the one true faith in new ways, to connect with other faithful Catholics who are committed to helping you grow closer to our blessed Lord, or simply looking for other Catholic voices who are willing to speak the truth, but still have some fun along the way, you've come to the right place. We're not experts, but have learned a lot collectively over the 15 plus years that we've been friends in the faith, and we want to share those nuggets of truth with you. So if you haven't yet subscribed, make sure you hit that subscribe button wherever you're listening so you can ensure you get the best Catholic candid conversations delivered to you every week. While you're at it, don't forget to follow us on social media at Theology of the Buddy so you can keep up to date with all of the great content we are sending out. And of course, all of our past episodes and show notes can be found at theologyofthebuddy.com. So, On today's podcast, we're continuing our liturgical breakdown series, uh, where we break open the treasure trove of the Church's sacred liturgy and share some of that spiritual gold with you to help you to better appreciate the tradition imbued in the Mass. We're talking specifically today about the Offertory and what it traditionally has been and how the Reformers changed it with the Mass of Paul VI. But before we do that, Let's check in. How are my fides acates? Do you know what that is? No. No? (laughs) (laughs) So it's a new word I learned today. It means true friends in Latin. Aww. (laughs) Isn't that cute? Thanks, buddy. (laughs) It is cute. So how are you guys doing? Doing well. Doing well. It's been a busy week. A bit of a busy week. But we're here. I actually went to adoration this week, which uh, was awesome. I haven't managed to go for a long time since um, COVID stuff. But it was a blessing to be able to go. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. I uh, I heard, though, that it was a little bit hijacked. Is that is that the case? Yeah, there was some, uh, some praise and worship. <laughs> It's, uh, I mean, it's good and bad. They're one of the few parishes offering adoration regularly that I could, like, they were the only one I could find nearby. And adoration on Tuesday night, they have two hours, which is great. And it looks like the first hour is more silent. (laughs) (laughs) There was some the priest doing some kind of ad hoc praise and worship during the second half. (laughs) He may or may not have sung reckless love. Um, (laughs) But as a bit of a callback to the last episode, when Brooke and I talked about this, she was like on my behalf, she was getting all angry and upset about it. And I was just kind of like, Oh, well I was happy to be there. And I just kind of, you know, shut it out and just focused on the prayers I was, I wanted to do and the reading I wanted to do and like preparing for confession and stuff. And 
Brooke was like, that's the most phlegmatic thing I've ever heard. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. He's just like, I could just tone it all out and it's fine. I got my Bible and my book, whatever. I mean, it was annoying, but like, that's a a phlegmatic virtue, I think. It doesn't stir you up or anything. You can just kind of acknowledge it and then move on so quickly. (laughs) It's like, that's the... Strength and weakness of phlegma- phlegmatics, not getting upset, but also not being zealous enough, right? So it's easy to to emotionally move on from stuff like that, but it's harder to stir yourself up to worthy things. There you go. Little digression to last week. <laughs> Speaking about stirring stirring things up. Right now, when we are recording, it's November the 5th, and we are still, I mean, as Canadians, we're still kind of the apartment over top of the meth lab right now, like watching the dumpster fire of the United States elections happening right now. Like, it's crazy. It's it's like, yeah. it's like the best TV I've ever seen. <laughs> Everyone wants to find out which crazy old man will be in charge of the meth lab <laughs> in four years. <laughs> yeah, it's it's nuts, eh? Like, I mean, voter fraud. I mean, claims of voter fraud anyway. I mean, just, yeah, it's nuts. Did you guys watch any any commentary on the night of the elections? Yeah, we did. did. We watched some of the church militant stuff together. Yeah. Brooke watched more of it than I did. Yeah. But we we went to bed early though. Yeah. So you probably only saw like a couple states close pretty much at that point. Probably. Yeah. 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 Well, here going back to Mike's commentary on uh, his temperament, seeing all of the stuff going on in the U S and, you know, we have lots of friends that are in the U.S. and everything else. I feel stressed just not knowing, like, what the end result is going to be because I'm very empathetic for, you know, friends that we have. And my my head goes, like, worst case scenario, how is this going to impact Canada regardless of who wins? And so then my melancholic personality just says, it's all going to just burn up. Everything's terrible and I don't even live there. <laughs> it's yeah, it's it's tough to watch it. Like yeah. I mean you guys know me. I love the United States. Like it has yeah, definitely a, a a a very special spot in in our lives here and um yeah, watching it kind of implode on itself is is crazy and like i saw this picture this meme today where it showed the like it showed the donkey and the elephant right like representing the the democrats and the republicans and there's this guy standing above it above the two of them with like a stick and he's poking them and he's like okay now do a civil war do a civil war now you know isn't it a rhino a rhino and a donkey? I could be wrong. No, it's an elephant. Okay. Okay. Rhino is what you call the uh, fake Republicans. Oh. Uh, Republican in name only. 
R I N O. Oh, okay. <laughs> wow. I I learned something tonight. That's yeah. We don't have a snazzy term in Canadian in Canada. I guess we call them red Tories because the colors are reversed in Canada. Right. Red is liberal and blue is conservative. But we have a lot of red Tories up here. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, we're praying for you, America. And that's yeah. uh that's that's really the heart of it. Things are things are not calming down and uh you know, your Canadian friends up north over top of the meth lab are praying for your safety and for everything else. Um, and so in the spirit of offering up our friends, let's talk about the offertory, shall we? Nice segue. Okay. I'm not going to lie. We went into discussing this episode and I was like, oh yeah, no problem. Well, there'll be a little bit here, a little bit there. Then I went down a rabbit hole. Like I researched most of my available time today, learning everything I could. And there is so much. It's just me. Maybe. No. It's a surprising amount of information about this part of the mass. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is quite a bit. Yeah. And there's, there's a lot of polarizing opinions, especially with the more, you know, modernist types um, who want to take fire at the reforms of Paul V and Pius V. Pius V, excuse me. What did I say? Paul V? (laughs) He didn't make any reforms. Did he do anything? I don't know anything about him. Who's Pius Pius V? Yeah. Paul the fifth. Paul the fifth. Paul the fifth. Wow. Um, it was the fourth and the sixth. <laughs> the fourth is the one that sent all the. Uh, help me with the word for like sexually immoral people. Anyway, all the sexually immoral <laughs> clergy in Rome. He made them galley slaves. That's what I remember him for. <laughs> um, <laughs> we need more of that. <laughs> He also did some unfortunate bad stuff, but when I found out that's what he did, I always thought if I became Pope, I'd be Paul the seventh and I would try to emulate that part of his papacy. <laughs> hey, Hey, well, you know, if, you know, father Renero Cantalamessa can just suddenly be elevated to a Cardinal. I mean, you can do anything. Yeah. Why not? All you have to do is believe. Sometimes you don't even have to do that. (laughs) (laughs) Oof. (laughs) Speaking of that, let's talk about the Novus Ordo Offertory. Just kidding. Let's, I mean, let's get into it in general, but. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So yeah, the Offertory, there is kind of vast differences in terms of placement and um, even existing <laughs> in some of the rights and whatnot. Um, but uh, would you guys agree that in the majority of the uh, of the rights, so in the uh, in the Latin rite and uh, in the majority of the Byzantine rites and things like that, um, the Anglican ordinariate, um, they all have some form of offertory. Is that 
correct? Absolutely. Yep. And what is the operatory? I mean, I would say it's kind of the anticipation before the actual sacrifice of the mass and before the canon in the Roman rite and like the initial blessing and preparation for it. Yeah, I would agree with that. Would you add anything to that description? That was just kind of off the top of my head. Not- I, I, I honestly think that that kind of sums it up. I mean, in the, in the Angelus press missile, the way that it describes the moment of the offertory. Um, it says this moment quote brings us back to our true place before God and purifies us. It prepares us to enter into God and share in his divine activities. The offertory opens the door to the secrets of God and to union with him. End quote. Wow. Yeah. Um, speaking of that anticipation as well, it says, quote, as this bread on the paten and this wine in the chalice are in a state of expectancy of becoming Christ's body and blood, so we present ourselves to God in voluntary expectancy of a change to be made in us, an expectancy of divinization, end quote. Wow. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. The uh, anticipation and expectancy is a big theme I noticed in all the prayers. It, and that's almost a source of scandal for some people in the criticisms of offertory, um, or at least the traditional ones, that uh, the prayers talk about the unconsecrated bread and wine mm-hmm. as already being a sacrifice because they're they're speaking in anticipation right one of the writers um talking about the offertory so he says in this sense the liturgy is almost acting outside of time it's already in anticipating the sacrifice to that degree and that happens in both east and west like in uh the Roman rite, you start off by saying, um, oh, I don't have the Roman one in front of me, but let me read the ordinariate because it's basically the same words. More on that later. Um, Receive, O Holy Father, almighty and everlasting God, this spotless host, which I, thy divine servant, now offer to thee. And host is, um, I learned today in Latin, hostia, meaning victim. So it's already treating the uh, the unconsecrated host as as the victim, as our Lord, in anticipation of the consecration. And similarly, in the East, when the priest professes processes in with the uh, elements, the bread and wine, they. Uh, they sing, let us welcome the king of the universe who comes escorted by invisible armies of angels, even though it's only in anticipation of the king of the universe entering because the consecration has not yet happened. Both of the liturgies speak that way. 
before the consecration. Mm-hmm. That's something that seems to be intentionally removed, I think, by the reforms. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, like in the in the uh, Latin rite of the, like the Tridentine Mass, the the words start out "Suscipe Sancte Pater Omnipotens Aeterne Deus." Right, receive a Holy Father, Almighty and Eternal God the spotless host which I, thine unworthy servant, offer unto thee, my living and true God, for my own countless sins, offenses, and negligences, and for all here present, as also for all faithful Christians, living or dead, that it may avail for my own and for their salvation unto life eternal. Amen. So right, right off the hop, the priest prays this prayer that Shushipe Sancte Pater, which according to Dom Garanger, dates from the eighth or ninth century. So it's so obviously it's very ancient, right? And it goes right into pointing out that this is indeed being uh, a sacrifice being made in atonement for our own sins, firstly for his own then for ours, and then for the entire church, living and dead. Yeah, and that explicitness is, I think, one of the indispensable qualities of the offertory. Nowhere else do you really see the uh, sacrificial nature of the Mass be so explicitly laid out. And uh, yeah, that's in that sense, it's kind of a... Um, like a compliment to the Roman canon, which is less explicit on some of these points. And honestly, a compliment that is missing in the Novus Ordo. I was saying when we were talking about the subject earlier before we started recording, it's much like in the creeds of the church as you go through the centuries, progressively more and more um, specificity is added to the creeds to rule out certain heresies they get more and more detailed and i think the offertory in a certain sense serves a purpose like that in the mass it comes in in um, kind of the early middle ages and it um, yeah it provides more explicit prayers relating to what's happening in the mass obviously that um the church always believed that oh, the mass was the holy sacrifice of Calvary made made present, but the offertory prayers make that very explicit. And it's one of the uh, kind of obvious in hindsight results of removing these prayers is, oh, look, the heresies are back. Now most Catholics no longer see the mass as a holy sacrifice. It's seen more as just a community meal, like a Protestant service or uh, like a a cedar meal or something like that. Yeah. And yeah, really, you know, that that's kind of the thrust of the, the, what they call in the Novus Ordo, they don't call it the offertory. Uh, It's, it's uh, termed the presentation and preparation of the gifts. And you will see in it a, completely different prayer from any of the other 
rites, and it follows the form yep. of a Jewish table blessing, right? Blessed are you, Lord God of all creation, for your for through your goodness we have received the bread we offer you, fruit of the earth, work of human hands. It will become for us the bread of life, you know. And we all respond, "Blessed be God forever," and then. The priest prays that by the mystery of this water and wine, may we come to share in the divinity of Christ, who humbled himself to share in our humanity. And then he goes on to say, Blessed are you, Lord God of all creation, for through your goodness we have received the wine we offer you, fruit of the vine work of human hands. It will become our spiritual drink. A lot of this, I don't know if you've noticed, is kind of a praise for man, you know, Look at the look at the work we've done. You know, it's the fruit of the earth, work of human hands. You know, it it seems to just again, it's very homocentric. Mm-hmm. One thing too, I don't know if you noticed uh, this as well that there is a, a just a little difference, right? So, um, well, not actually a little difference, a big difference. So, following the creed in the Novus Ordo, they go right into the prayers of the faithful. We don't have that in the traditional Latin mass. We have the same kind of petitions every Sunday for the, in the Eastern rite. You know, there are certain petitions that they say, right, Brooke? Yes. In the Eastern rite. Yes. Yeah. Like in the, uh, Liturgy of St. John Chrysostom that we have right here. It's right at the beginning of the liturgy that they put all these petitions forward. Mm-hmm. Right. But it's it's always the same. It's not, you don't get to change it, you know, at whim. Um, but with the prayers of the faithful, you can do whatever you want. You know, as long as you, I mean, there's recommendations, right? Pray for the dead, pray for the Pope, pray for the church, pray for the world, you know? Um, But there's, I mean, you can word it in whatever way you want, you know, as long as it follows certain um, formula, like ends with Lord, hear our prayer, you know, things like that. The weirdest one that I heard was we pray for families that are different, that I don't know. They may something, something, something. But it was just like, what? Be more specific in your words. <laughs> Aren't we all different? Well, you are. I don't know. <laughs> you are for sure. Yeah. It's true. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a good point, though. Like, we've all seen weird stuff snuck in there through many years of Novus Ordo masses. At, at the school masses. Did you ever have like the kids bring up like a hockey stick or I don't know, like a friendship banner or a soccer ball? We had stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Mm-hmm. A cornucopia. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, well, and here's the thing, even going back to how they would present gifts or offerings um, in the Middle Ages, there was a specific spot away from the altar that they would put those things. The, are mm-hmm. you sure you mean the Middle Ages, or do you mean before? Because the offertory we know in the Latin Mass is from early Middle Ages. It could it could be before. 
but I'm pretty sure I read Middle Ages. I'll find that. I'll show you. <laughs> Put it in the show notes. It'll be fine. Yeah, that sounds great. Yeah. This is a, a thing that kind of evolved out of the people providing things like the bread and wine for mass and stuff like that. Right. Like, anyway, what were you saying, Chris? I was just going to say, coming back to what you were saying earlier as well, you know, the fact that the, the prayers immediately transport you in mind to the foot of the cross, you know, it, it is, it is meant to, for the priest in particular, help him to be, you know, to turn his mind to what is coming, which is this full sacrifice made present on the altar. And I mean, it, it legitimately prepares. It should, if he's, you know, properly disposed, it should be a wake up call, like get ready. This is a big deal. This is happening. You know, um, the, in the, uh, Angelus Press Missal, it says that in the offertory, Christ unites our desires and prayers to his own offering of himself to the Father. As our intentions are joined to the passion of Christ, they assume the value of the passion in the eyes of God. You know, so, you know, there is that, you know, there's always this attitude, at least from the Novus Ordo side, that's like, in order to have full active conscious participation, you've got to have all these, uh, all these bells and whistles, and and everybody's got to be singing and clapping their hands and doing all this and that. But the real heart of, you know, real active conscious participation, is the uniting of our hearts in that silence of the priest prayers, you know, and uniting our our desires with that on that altar. And submitting ourselves to God, the Father, with Christ, and I think that the Novus Ordo fails at making that reality present to the faithful, even if it is what is specifically happening. You know, despite the prayers, right? It is. It is certainly more efficacious for the faithful and for the priest to have those prayers. Yeah, I mean. Ideally, ideally, you might still have the Roman canon in the Novus Ordo if the priest chooses to do so. But even so, um, a lot of the prayers in the offertory, as I mentioned, are way more explicit about this kind of thing and really put you in the right frame of mind for uh, the holy sacrifice. Right. I wanted to touch on one thing that you mentioned about the priest and how the initial prayers of the offertories are kind of specific to the priest. And I see this as kind of an antidote to the anti-clericalism that has kind of crept in with modernism, like the idea that um, the uh, lay people are kind of all on the same level with the priest and uh, he's not really essential. The, uh, the offertory is the one part, the one prayer where the priest actually says, I, like he speaks in first person singular. So that's like, 
again, more explicitly um, illustrating that the priest is the one that's essential to the mass. He can be saying mass without anyone else there, but even if you have every lay person in the world, you can't say a mass without a priest. Yeah. I found that spot that I had been talking about, by the way. Tell us more. Yeah. So this is from, this is the mass. Uh, we'll put a link in the show notes of that book. So the congregation indicated unmistakably, unmistakably their share in the act of offering by going themselves in procession to present these get their gifts. What were these gifts? Bread and wine, first of all, but also other edible substances and even other things such as gold and silver, even birds and flowers. The deacons sorted out these gifts on a special table and they placed on one side all that would be used in the sacrifice, so the bread and the wine, and on the other they piled up what would be given to the poor. So there you have it. This is in the early church he's talking about? I believe so. So not Middle Ages, but yeah, I can't. Yeah, I can't see a, a specific date, but maybe it's in there, and I'm just missing it. Anyway, there you go. But again, it's not the focal point, right? It's not the action of the people bringing up the gifts and bowing to the priest and doing all this weird stuff. Doing another job that needs to be done. Yeah, got to have late people bringing up stuff. Yeah. Doing stuff all up there. Yeah. But again, coming back to what Mike was saying, Gregory de Pippo in his article on the new liturgical movement with regards to the theology of the offertory says, quote, even if people are present only in one server or not present at all, the priest himself can offer the sacrifice, but no number of the lay faithful can offer it without him. As a locus theologicus, this prayer serves as a useful corrective to the modern tendency to overemphasize the people's role in the Mass to the detriment of the priests. So, you know, Gregory de Pippo agrees with your, your point there for sure. Way to say it uh, way better than I did, though. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and it further, it emphasizes the absolute need that the priest has to present himself as unworthy because of of the weight of what he's carrying like the weight the weight of his actions on behalf of the people right does that make sense am i wording that right yeah i mean it's 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 a weighty thing right it's not it's a big deal and i mean you know like i mean just read the dignities and duties of the priest by saint alphonsus liguori and you'll know that like there is so much that hinges on the life of the priest you know i mean obviously you know the efficacy and the the validity of the mass doesn't uh depend upon his holiness but i mean the certainly the uh if a priest isn't living a holy life it's a scary it's a scary situation to be in and so it has to be taken seriously uh, with all with all attention. Coming back as well to the differences between the offertory in the traditional Latin Mass and the Novus Ordo, one of the things that you will find, especially if you uh, are able to get get up close and be able to to watch what's happening on the altar, or just have a Latin Mass missal, 
you will see that throughout the process, there is constantly done the sign of the cross over the elements of the bread and the wine. This again is pointing to the reality of what is about to occur in on that patent and in that chalice on that altar is the representation of the sacrifice of Christ on Calvary, right? The once for all sacrifice, not being sacrificed again. We don't believe that despite what the Protestants want to accuse us of. That's not the case. Um, it is the once for all sacrifice made present in our midst. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I, it's quite mind blowing. The number of times the sign of the cross is done. Yeah. And little things like the priest making a little cross with the paten after he prays over the um, unconsecrated bread. It's funny little things that make me wonder, like, what were they thinking changing stuff like that? Because, like, you're still blessing the bread on the paten in the new form of the Mass, but that sign of the cross just, we don't need to do that anymore. Like, why not? What... What's the problem with the sign of the cross? I, I think it harkens back to what we were saying in one of our previous episodes, where we talked about the pushback from the reformers, Bunini and, and the like, against vain repetition. Because there is obviously that, that constant use of the sign of the cross in the traditional Latin mass, but yet during the quote unquote Eucharistic prayer, there's only one time where the sign of the cross is really done over the bread and the wine. And that's at the epiclesis, right? Sounds right. I'm not hundred percent sure. Yeah. Let me, let me fact check that Facebook. <laughs> okay. Mr. Snopes over here. There is only one sign of the cross, and it's when the the priest uh, prays the prayer, saying, quote, "Make holy, therefore, these gifts." We pray by sending your spirit down, uh, spirit upon them, like the dewfall, uh, so that they may become for us the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only time he signs over the elements of the bread and wine. Yeah, very suspicious. Mm-hmm. Smells like Bunini to me. Speaking of smells, the incense, they like there's like another round of incensing at the offertory. Oh, yeah, that's true. It's only sometimes at the Novus Ordo, and it's usually only Easter. Sometimes Christmas, maybe. Yeah, that's another little difference, right? The incense is always optional. I think. Yeah, it's always optional. Yeah. I mean, at a high mass, you would do incense in the Tridentine mass. You know, not not in a low mass. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's correct. Also, with even with regards to to that, I mean, maybe we are getting a little further ahead, but I mean, I would encourage anybody uh, who wants to have something to <laughs> really see the differences. Just 
uh, look in our show notes at theologyofthebuddy.com for today's episode. And uh, we'll put in there a link for the prayers of the offertory and just, just read through them because they're, I mean, they're beautiful first and foremost. Um, but if you are only really familiar with the Novus Ordo, I think it's, it's worth looking at, especially the mention of the saints throughout the, even in the midst of the, um, the offertory making mention specifically at that incensing of St. Michael, Mm-hmm. which is cool, but maybe we can hop back to what you were saying before you wanted to talk specifically about the epiclesis. Did you want to talk about that, Mike? Yeah, that's, it's kind of an interesting, uh, connection. The, uh, prayer, um, near the end of the offertory, it says, um, uh, it starts veni sanctificator, uh, come, O Almighty and Eternal God, the Sanctifier, and bless this sacrifice prepared for the glory of Thy holy name. That's an important prayer in the Latin rite because it acts as kind of a a pseudo epiclesis. This is another thing that Gregory de Pippo talks about in his articles that. Um, this is kind of a supplement to the implicit epiclesis in the Roman canon. So both East and West, we believe that through the words of our Lord and by the power of the Holy Spirit, the transubstantiation takes place in the Holy Mass. But um, it's always been a, a slight, well, not always, but I guess it is a slight point of contention between East and West that in the East, the Holy Spirit is always invoked more explicitly by name during the epiclesis. And so it's important that right before the, the canon in the offertory, the uh, Holy Spirit is invoked more explicitly like this in order to bless the Holy Sacrifice in anticipation. Now, this is something where in the Eucharistic prayers in the Novus Ordo, they put in more explicit epiclesis <laughs> into, into all of them, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's more, it's more, yeah, it seems more uh, explicit for sure. But in either case, the, the prayer of petition asking for the Holy ghost to descend upon these gifts is there whether, you know, um, whether they say descend like the dewfall or not, it is, it is there. Um, and maybe, maybe just a side note with regards to, to that in either case in the Novus Ordo, as well as in the, the traditional Latin mass, there's kind of a hidden beauty to that moment, right? Even though it's subtle in the in the traditional Latin Mass, the placing of the hand of the priest over the gifts and asking for the Holy Ghost to come and sanctify them is kind of reminds you of the Holy Ghost when he 
overshadowed the Blessed Virgin Mary. He came and overshadowed her, and the the Word was made flesh in her womb. And, and it's the same here on the altar. Our Lord becomes present by the power of the Holy Ghost, you know, through the hands of the priest when he he prays the prayers of consecration. So, um, yeah, just just really kind of beautiful. And uh, like in ancient liturgical architecture, this was also seen quite often, um, where above the altar would hang they would hang a dove. And in some of them, uh, they would actually put in the blessed sacrament in that dove. What? That was the ancient the ancient tabernacles. Yeah, very very cool. And um, I just for those who are listening who are part of our own parish community uh, at Holy Angels, shout out to the London Latin Mass Apostolate. Um, if you look at the, we have a baldacchino over top of our altar at our parish. If you look straight up underneath it, you will notice that there is an image of the Holy Ghost, right? So, you know, it it's cool because there's also like, there's lights shining down and whatnot on the altar. But I mean, it's a reminder, right, of that, that moment where the Holy Ghost overshadowed the Blessed Virgin Mary and reminds us that that's exactly what's happening in the Blessed Sacrament. So, We've said a lot about how in this area the Novus Ordo seems kind of deficient compared to the Latin Mass. And obviously it's something a lot of people in the traditional Catholic circles are always thinking about. What is the path forward for the church? What what do we need to do to restore the kind of integrity of worship in the Roman rite. Um, and I thought um, Bishop Schneider in Christus Vinci addressed this really well in a way that was kind of practical. It might be kind of hard for some trads to hear, but uh, I think it's a way that would actually work. And basically what he says is that um, unlike the kind of extreme rupture that took place when the Novus Ordo was imposed on the faithful, there needs to be a gradual restoration of traditional elements into the Novus Ordo by future popes in order to bring the people back to the right understanding of the liturgy. Because... Um, I've heard it said often, and it's unfortunately, I think it's kind of true that if you know we had Pope Pius the Thirteenth, and he came in and was like, "Okay, no more Novus Ordo. Everyone's doing the Latin Mass." I think in in our modern societies, there would just be no more Catholics except for the trads. Like there would just be a mass apostasy. Because people wouldn't understand. They would just not be able to make that jump. But introducing tradition um, more gradually like that like gives people a chance to actually understand it and be converted, right? So that all that to say, um, 
the traditional offertory prayers are probably one of the best things that could be organically restored in the Novus Ordo. Um, and I think it's worth noting that they are present in um, the Anglican Ordinariate Liturgy, uh, which is all in English, but it has basically the exact prayers from the Latin Mass for the Offertory. So there's no reason that in a vernacular Mass you couldn't have these prayers. Yeah. Right? What do you think about that, Chris? I agree. I agree. The um the the interesting point too is, and again we'll we'll include this in our show notes as well, is that if you look at the writings, especially at and and this again, this is a fantastic um a fantastic resource uh, discussing the offertory, and it's the um like the seven part art article of the theology of uh, the Offertory by Gregory de Peppo. Uh, he talks about the fact that even in the Apostolic Constitution, Miscele Romanum on April 3rd, 1969, it doesn't appear that Paul VI intended for the Offertory prayers to be revised and to um, essentially to be eliminated. You know, so there has certainly been and and there's there's a lot of resources out there and maybe you know we could get into this in a future podcast but there is a lot of questions as to what happened there because there was an initial um there was an initial missile created by Pope Paul VI that included the offertory prayers but in the end it disappeared those those offertory prayers. Yeah, it, it's not even like a, you know, an omission of parts of it. It's like com- almost completely re- rewritten and substituted by, you know, like we said before, this uh, Jewish blessing-inspired prayer. Yeah, which Jewish table blessings are good in their own right, I guess, you know, but they've never been truly part of the sacred liturgy. There's no precedent for their addition uh, to the Missal. And to me, and I think Gregory de Peppo makes a very good point, there's there's really no strong case that someone can make to say that the format of the, the liturgy with its lack of offertory prayers is apostolic in origin. I don't see that being the case at all. I'd agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. At the end of the day, you know, let's say, for example, you're in the Novus Ordo land and your parish doesn't have an offertory uh, during the Mass, obviously. What can, what can someone do who's just a regular, normal Catholic sitting in the pew to, yeah, better enter into and prepare for? the moment of consecration. Yeah, I I guess you want to try to emulate the spiritual preparation that the faithful are meant to be doing during the offertory in the mass, right? Like um I'm thinking of a a talk and I think it was on census fidelium about basically uniting your 
prayers with the uh, intention of the mass at the offertory. Mm, unfortunately, I don't really remember a ton of detail, but like that same kind of spirit of um, uniting our prayers with the priest and preparing ourselves for the sacrifice should be our our disposition at that part of the mass. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. What do you think? I Rick? was going to say, like we got that um, book of propers, like missile for the Latin mass from. Yeah, it's like a mini missile. Yeah. Um, it's just called the extraordinary form of the Roman rite of the mass of propers for Sundays and holy days. This is from um, St. John Cantius. Yeah. Anyway, so this is a prayer before mass, but I can't see why someone couldn't use it while preparing during the offertory is a prayer of St. Augustine. I don't know. We could link it in the show notes, but uh, I think that would be great because it kind of harkens on to how in the offertory, the priests, like in the Latin mass, the priest discuss says that he is an unworthy servant and he wants to be made. He wants to do things right. <laughs> yeah. It does kind of share a similar theme. Yeah. Hey, I'll read the first line of it just to get an idea. Before thine eyes, O Lord, we bring our sins and we compare them with the stripes we have received. And it kind of continues in that vein about how like how unworthy we are of God's continual love and mercy and uh, just asking God for his mercy in spite of our uh, unfaithfulness. Mm-hmm. It's a good prayer. But yeah, something like that. Yeah. And you might have to grow as we talked in the previous podcast, growing your phlegmatic approach, because in a lot of Novus Ordo, Norv, Novus Ordo parishes, the time of the offertory is a sing song time. So you might have to kind of tune it out and get kind of tuned into the Lord. Oh, yeah. That was another thing. So I was reading the general instruction and they were saying, um, you know, an appropriate hymn or chant. And I'm just like, bro, we didn't have that. We had Hillsong and Matt Marr. Tune that out. <laughs> yeah. You'll be just like me at Adoration tuning out reckless love. <laughs> and it might actually be reckless love depending on your parish. Because I, I was surprised when I read that. They were saying like offertory chant or appropriate hymn. I'm just like, oh, okay. Because that's not usually what happens ever. Yeah, it's generally a completely inappropriate hymn. Or just or yeah. non-hymn yeah. pop song. Yeah. Gwen Christian, if you are if you're listening, uh thank you for putting in chant at your parish at the Novus Ordo. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) That's one of those um, organic restorations of tradition in Mm -hmm. the Novus Ordo. We need to restore chant to it all the time. Not just, uh, you know, at the one unicorn parish where someone still knows how to do it mm-hmm. or yeah you know. yeah i think you know uh, 
Father Richard Heilman. I've talked about him lots before, but he's a fantastic example of a priest who knew how to do this and has done it well, and it has revitalized his entire parish and uh, you know has really set him on the map as a as a fantastic pastor. I hope maybe to get him on the podcast sometime this this season to talk about his priesthood and how he did that. Um, but you know he was a man uh, he was a priest who decided you know what I'm going to do it organically and um, you know made sure his people were well prepared and mm-hmm. slowly introduced the inter- you know slowly introduced elements of traditional catholic worship and it you know it has really revitalized the parish so um yeah so good on him anyways I think I think that's good for for the end of part one of the offertory. I think we might talk a little bit more of the additional elements and go into the the canon in our next liturgical breakdown, right? Maybe. Right on. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, first of all, I want to thank everybody for listening to this week's podcast. We really appreciate it, especially a big shout out to our VIB group who is faithfully listening and growing. And uh, we are just so glad that you're, you're part of this and helping us grow this little apostolate of ours. Um, Again, if you haven't yet, please, we'd love for you to subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening. Um, You can find us on Google, Stitcher, Spotify, um, Apple Podcasts. Um, Hopefully soon to be tuned in is going to be a thing. And Amazon and maybe Pandora, if I can get us in there. Um, we're, we're, We're spreading out all over the world. So... Uh, we want you to be part of that. So make sure you're subscribed uh, as well. If you have any questions or want to hang out with us, we'd love for you to do that. You can find us on social media everywhere at Theology of the Buddy um, or email us at theologyofthebuddy at gmail.com. Again, visit our website, theologyofthebuddy.com for past episodes and all of our show notes. On the next podcast, Mike and I are getting together again and doing a Sons of Thunder reacts. So you're not going to want to miss it. And uh, yeah, until then, stay Stay tratty. tratty.